Hello and welcome to the next installment of Ortho Real, the podcast keeping it real in orthopedic surgery and all things related to healthcare, medicine, surgery, and other interesting topics. Our guest today, Peter Varillo, is the CEO of InHatch, an information technology company uh, in the orthopedic space. Peter, hello and welcome. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Going great, man. Delighted that you've uh, joined us today. Um, so you have a obviously a very strong engineering background, but tell us about you and, and how you came to where you are in uh, the healthcare and IT space now. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story that uh, I, I feel like I tell it so often because it's the whole reason why we're here as a company. Uh, so thanks for having me here and having me go through it with you guys. Uh, I started it with uh, a mechanical engineering degree from Stevens, and I'm looking for my first internship. You know, we call it a co-op program. And there's this company called Osteonics on the list, and they were looking for someone who knew how to do CAD. So this is like mid-90s, and I, uh, I get this job, and I was still like, you know, a teenager at that point. Um, but I find just like uh, this home that I love, that striker. Uh, and uh, uh, I've developed some great needs with them. Came back after college, uh, after I did a startup in the time frame, I came back and uh, worked at Striker for another five years, developed another knee and a hip, and, uh, and then I went off to do a shoulder. Each time I went and designed another product and launched another product, all which turned out to be really successful. We had very little data back then, right? We, uh, we made some decisions based upon x-rays and measurements and, you know, some rough studies. Uh, but we kept on trying to have this, uh, this, this solution. As an engineer, you're always trying to find uh, the right answer, right? The right fit, the right number of sizes, uh, the right instruments. And uh, we had such limited data in that time frame. Um, when I left uh, Stryker to start my own company, that ended up getting acquired by uh, HealthPoint Capital and, and then Nexo Orthopedics is and that got rolled up into Tournier by another acquisition uh, six months after that. We, uh, we were on to something interesting where we finally had access to some better CT data. Uh, we were finally able to get that, and that allowed us to, uh, to have a different level of um, visualization into the human body. Uh, so as we, we kept evolving our understanding of the, this is now you know across uh, 12, 13, 14 years from when I started in the industry, it was such a different amount of information uh, in the in the design of the device. Um, the reason why I was always searching for this is we were looking for the the right answer. We're looking for the right number of sizes because, you know, it's expensive to make these parts and it's expensive to make hundreds of sets of all the sizes. And uh, that was always a hurdle at these companies. So that's where we kind of started. And um, I, my, all my experiences of designing products and launching products kind of got me to the point in 2012 where we had wrapped up our work with Tournier. Uh, they ended up merging with Wright, and now Stryker, as you guys all probably know, owns, owns that still. So Stryker gets everything I, I've ever designed um, in the past. And uh, it's, a, uh, it, it's a nice way to kind of like take this next part of my journey. So. I, I, okay, I've launched a number of products in hip, knee, shoulder. I did some work in spine. I did a finger. 
uh, you name it. And through that time, the the things I've learned, I started working on it at Hatch. So the things that I struggle with as an engineer, and then as later on as like a, a business manager, um, you know, working in marketing and working with the, the team to deploy and launch products, I learned, wow, it's actually hard to deal with uh, sales reps who need content, right? So the first thing we started with was a way to do that so they wouldn't have to email me the, for the brochure, right? Um, then we tackled bigger and bigger things over time. Uh, we tackled, you know, sales orders. We tackled uh, inventory management. We ended up acquiring a company uh, in 2015 called Third that had uh, a platform and integrated that into our system. So every year we just tackled this next part of the industry that we're struggling with. And um, in 2016, we raised a seed round. And, uh, and at this point, I've now got like three and a half, four years of like tech experience. And I just see this, um, this clarity around the future because we were evaluating AI along the way. And, uh, this is still early enough that people knew, people in tech knew what AI is, but I think the general pop didn't. Um, and we said, well, you know, our customers, our, our investors were from Silicon Valley. They had, you know, big investments in companies like Lyft early and other companies like that. And they said, how do you, um, 10X your product, right? You know, the zero to one concept from Peter Thiel. And we went down this road on um, Labor Day that year and kind of mapped it out on a whiteboard. And while it's markedly different in many ways, it's expanded even beyond what we originally thought. It's fundamentally the direction we've been going in the past five years uh, is really evolving the, uh, the industry. And I think it's now it's ready and now it's time which is exciting because like now everybody's into this and learning about it and all the companies are starting to really pick up on it. You've touched on a lot of points there that are, are great areas we could jump off on for any of them. So your background mm-hmm. was in, in designing joint implants and in, in working with those. So did that evolve because we're, we're are we reaching a point, uh, this is a loaded question, are we reaching a point mm-hmm. of diminishing returns with that? And so the pain points were elsewhere, and so that evolved your interest into going in different directions with that? Or w- was it just things that, that showed up on your radar that you got more interested in, or what, what drove that transition? So when I was younger, there was definitely a, a thing that would happen with me. Once I, saw, like once I had successfully completed a project, I felt like, okay, well, I really don't want to do that again. There's, you know, some folks that get stuck into developing, you know, knee after knee after knee after knee. And, uh, that's a great path, but, uh, I kind of got bored with knee. Um, so then I went shoulder. I did hip for a little bit in between two. Like I actually started a striker on a hip project then moved to the knee. And, um, did the, so I did the original Scorpio, but I was, uh, I was young, right? So I was like the drafter. The guy who put his, but my name was on the archives. If you go back and strike her, my name was on the drawing, doing the drawing, um, you know, GD and T and that kind of thing. And then I designed my own system, ran my own project. And the next step was, okay, let me run my own company. And every time I just liked that next level, and it was a startup, it was only a three of us. So it wasn't like this big company, but when we got acquired, that grew and grew. And um, at each step, I took on more responsibility. Uh, I got into marketing and other areas. So it did come back to a lot with um, me evolving the the things I wanted to work on and evolving my my own skills. But then 
after all these product launches. So I had probably at this point uh, five or six product launches under my belt at uh, by 2012, and have all gone on to sell billions. So that's worked out for uh, for the companies I work with. But we had such inventory issues. We had such communication issues. I used to have to get on a plane to talk to a doctor and see the problem happen in surgery. Uh, every time, like, I was just decided to start, and me and my co-founders decided to start solving the problems that we experienced that make the industry very analog and very outdated. So we were really trying to solve those problems. So, you know, every day we get to affect that, uh, that kind of future that we're trying to build. And so maybe that gets to this term that, that you've used and that's uh, sort of at the, the center of NHATCH of pioneering so-called intelligent surgery. Mm-hmm. Give us a framework of, of what that means when we talk about intelligent surgery. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's funny that uh, a couple of years ago, if you did a search for it, uh, nothing would really come up maybe a couple journal articles and it's usually around a different combination of words, but uh, it's really started to become part of the common uh, language that we use and taxonomy around surgery. So what's nice is that uh, intelligent surgery is really the implementation of artificial intelligence into orthopedics, into, you know, surgery. So it could be as simple as um, helping a, a warehouse picker, uh, choose a certain set of products for a certain size patient. Uh, it can be more complex and the intelligence can be used to uh, predict the uh, best implant size based on an optimization algorithm instead of like a fixed set of sizes, but custom generating the, the 3D model. Um, but it's going to even evolve beyond where we are now when there's sensors uh, retrieving data intraoperatively, we could uh, take that data and loop it through the optimization and loop it through the intelligence to decide what should the next step be. Should you do that release or should you uh, cut a little bit more off the, of the condyle? And um, that's where I feel like uh, the embodiment of intelligent surgery really is just the the transition from analog to digital happened, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago with navigation. Um, but now the, the industry is moving towards intelligent surgery. And um, the, the other part of this, we have an interesting take on how that's even evolving that uh, I'd love to share. If, uh, if you've, if you've got a few minutes. Absolutely. Have at it. So uh, this past week at Academy or, a couple of weeks ago at Academy, we launched uh, the Intelligent Surgery Ecosystem. And the idea with the ecosystem is we're, we're providing a framework for companies to int- uh, integrate all their technologies and all of their processes into one simple uh, system and ecosystem. So uh, if you're a large company right now, if you're Zimmer, you're on your own building your DB Edge creating your ecosystem of products. But if you're a smaller company, uh, you don't have access to this. Uh, even the mid-sized folks, like folks like Medaxa, they have a ton of technology that they're deploying in, in all these different areas. And if it is all one integrated system, that'd be amazing. 
right? But a lot of the times there are different silos and this information doesn't translate. And if you can't get the data from, from each of the sections of the, of the process of the workflow, you can't learn from it. And that's the goal here. Because if we, we can make all these assumptions and impressions and ideas around where to put an implant, but if we don't have the clinical outcomes data looped in and we don't have this feedback loop, we're not going to learn. And if we can't learn, then it's not truly, uh, it is AI, but it's not machine learning. It's not where the implants are going to get better. Yeah. So talk a little bit about AI and artificial intelligence. I, I think some of us have some concept of what it is and it is it's, it's either out there in the future or it's, you know, it's Skynet from the Terminator movies <laughs> or, or it's, it's, it, it's kind of becomes this black box of, okay, this, and then AI is in the middle. And then there's some, some other outcome here. What is that really? Is it, is it computational power to process these large amounts of data or, or talk about that or machine learning yeah, for, for those of us that are, that are on the periphery of this? That's a great, it's a great thing to, you know, to want to know, right? We need to understand this because uh, they all mean different things. So we can go back, you know, to the 50s or 60s, I think, when it was first really starting to uh, formulate. And there was these concepts around AI that, uh, that really um, proved uh, it could work. You know, and, and what happens is in the early days, I don't know if you remember word processors in the 90s, um, but it was, uh, you know, amazing to imagine that you could take a picture of a screen and, and, uh, use optical, optimal, uh, optical character recognition to identify the words on the page. And that was like, and that happened for the first time on a processor or on a computer. It kind of blew my mind that that was possible. And then obviously through the years that got faster and faster and it could happen, you know, now almost instantly, uh, so there's this concept of like AI has been there for a long time and we just, we weren't aware of it uh, because there wasn't a lot of media around it. Um, but in the late 2000s, it really started to accelerate again. It was kind of in a winter where there wasn't significant development for many years. Uh, and then that's when there was some early uh, results and traction coming out where like Google was able to identify a cat versus a dog. If you remember those early press releases, um, what happened was that we did get a lot more processing power and it wasn't from a CPU. It came from GPUs. So the GPUs gave us a lot more uh, cores and processors to run simultaneous solutions. Uh, and if you can remember your calc from uh, college, you know, it's hard to solve a, a you know, multi-period equation. It's hard to solve those equations like by hand. Computers can do them faster, but if you have more processors, you can run them and run more you know, more efficiently. So over the past 10 years, there's been incredible advancement, something that we, we dabbled in AI in the early days of Enhash, and something that would take three to four weeks to now be done within, you know, seconds, uh, just to consider the difference in, in speed. Uh, but it's also around moving from CPU to GPU, and it's also around the code bases and the frameworks that are out there. So Facebook, Google, all these different groups are developing more and more technology so we can build things faster and uh amazon as well of course so all these things are now at our fingertips to accelerate our own development and um what we're building with the ecosystem is to do the same that 
we're basically taking all the hard part of the development and coding and servers and scaling out so that companies can now use AI tools like off the shelf, drag and drop uh, into their systems today. So AI is really going to keep advancing. I will say the one thing that a lot of people confuse is um, it doesn't, it doesn't have to involve learning um, like an eventual yeah, learning, like a perpetual learning. It can, and it should, um, but uh, there's a lot of different parts of that uh, area of technology. But the ones that are most applicable to what we're all doing uh, really benefit from the machine learning side, which is a subset. So does the artificial intelligence, does the machine learning, is that what sort of pulls everything together from the ecosystem, if I'm thinking about that right or understanding that? Because we've got so many different things in, in industry and especially with, with joint implants and with a lot of things in, in orthopedics and healthcare. When we have robotics and mm-hmm. augmented reality and, and additives manufacturing and a lot of these technologies out there that may be to your earlier point can be a little siloed or, or they're, they're going, they're each kind of in their, in their parallel paths. Is, is this what, what pulls them together or tells us what's important or what's really going to get us best outcomes for our patients or make things safer or more efficient or things like that? Exactly. And that, that's what always comes back to where we're like, why are we doing this? Right. Uh, there's a story um, that is core to our kind of evolution into uh, this world. So for the first five years of our career, at Hatch, we were really focused on the, um, the development of software, enterprise software, workflow software to help the company. And then uh, right around the time we started mapping out with the investors what a 10x product looks like, we started really getting deeper into AI. Uh, a close member of our family passed from a knee surgery. Four days after surgery and embolism, uh, within 20 minutes, he... he um, he was gone, and he was kind of like a uh, uh, a grandfather to my daughter. You know, um, it was a tough part of the that world for us for that time. It was they asked me the advice on the surgeon, you know, and uh, there's always this bit of of you know, people do this all the time, right? Hey, you you do knees, you do hips. Who should I go see? And I usually recommend folks around here. They were based in Florida. I knew some guys down there, but. I was like, well, who have you seen so far? And they, you know, they said who it was and they were so happy and comfortable with him. And, uh, I was like, well, that's the most important part of this is that you have a trust in the relationship with the surgeon. That's like the, the most, right. uh, un, unquantifiable part of it is that when I go see Dr. Barber, he makes me feel good about the getting the surgery and I'm going to come out and I'm going to do well. And, uh, um, later on his wife, uh, a couple of years later, got knee surgery by the same doctor and um, had a great result. Uh, but you know that ephemeral rod in some cases causes issues, right? And every time I think about uh, traditional knee instrumentation, and yeah, it can be done right. You know, there's ways to get around that. You can flute the rod and you can do these other things. But when we invade the medullary canal, that does add an additional um, risk level. So, and that's just one, right? You know more than I do about all the different potential complications. And there's a 
there's a ton of uh, data pointing to the fact it's a very safe procedure, but it does happen occasionally. So it's always back to the, the patient. Um, and this is kind of one of our founding um, evolutions of the company when we went from workflow enterprise software into AI and into this intelligent surgery world. It was this transition over a couple of years after, you know, thinking about that and, and, you know, feeling that personally that that drove us as a company to really push forward in this space. So it always comes back to the patient. The, be- the better the outcome, the faster the recovery, the less disruption for their life. Um, and the other part of it is, and now this is really being shown up in, um, in the UK, the weight to the seat. Uh, surgeon. Yeah. So we can't have great results and it takes them five years to see us, right? Like that's not a, that's not good. So the other part of this challenge is that there's, I think a 5.3 million people as of um, the last reading I had um, waiting for surgeries um, in, in UK because of the COVID backlog. And they were already in a, in a bad place. Um, and even the U S the, this was a couple of years ago before COVID when um, our family friend went to get knee surgery after like two years after her husband passed, uh, she was originally told a one year wait. Um, and this is down in Florida, obviously where there's a high population of folks that need knee surgery. Um, once they realized who she was, they actually moved her up to just like you know, 60 days. But uh, can you imagine waiting a year? When, what, most sure. of the time they push it off two, three years to even see the doctor. And then having to wait an additional year, uh, that was, uh, um, you know, crazy. And now it could be two years. It could be three years. So that's the, uh, the part of this we also have to think about. How do we make this surgery faster for you and just as safe and just as accurate? That's the, the place we have to go to because they're not, they're not making 10% more orthopedic surgeons every year. They're making about 1%, right? The U.S. Uh, system. We have about 1% more surgeons each year. That's not a big increase, but we're growing a lot faster uh, as a population and as a disease. Sure. So in 10 years, in 10 years, you have to be able to do 1,500 joints a year, Matt. So do you want to just like stop having a family life and just like, you know, figure out how to work 18 hours a day or do we make the surgeries twice as fast? And, um, and, and that's the direction we have to all look at and go to definitely things to consider uh and i've had acquaintances tell me you know a year and a half wait for a joint replacement uh in canada so in in you know north america as well uh as the uk um and and maybe too i mean even on the non-operative side does uh does ai help us identify who who should have what non-surgical treatments who needs visco supplement injections who needs other non-operative pathways, uh, weight loss, uh, cold laser therapy. I mean, all the different things that, that may mm-hmm. be available, uh, biologics, all of those different techniques. And can we identify who benefits most from those and who's going to do well that we can buy time for before they're in that pipeline for joint replacement surgeries or things like that? Absolutely. That's the, that's the great use case for it. And I've even seen a surgeon a couple weeks ago present on it. Uh, and, uh, it's a great way to, to think about where else could AI be used. You know, I've, 
I've mainly focused around the, the joint um, spine world, and I've thought about it from a from a workflow point of view because I've you know our careers as a team has been sitting in surgeries with doctors, uh, participating cadaver lab design, you know, and then obviously the business part of it behind it, the inventory and the tracking and and all that. So we're addressing this uh, clinical workflow that affects the surgeon, affects the hospital, affects the medical device company. Uh, but there, there's applications for AI everywhere. And, um, and that's one of the reasons why we're building the ecosystem is that if there's a great researcher developer who creates a tool to, to anal- they analyze a ton of data. And now they have a way of uh, like stratifying the risk for that patient and saying, okay, this patient should go down path A or path B or path C. And path A is the best one for them because of all these reasons. Well, they should have a way to commercialize and integrate that into the workflow. So that's the kind of tech we're building is that that foundational architecture or network to allow them to easily uh, connect their system into our system that makes them, uh, gives them access to it. You know, right now almost a hundred companies, but eventually it'll be hundreds and hundreds of companies. So that's the exciting part that uh, there's going to be this ability to uh, to integrate directly into the workflow and when those technologies exist. And there's people working on them right now. So uh, there'll be more and more every day. So it, it feels like you've got solutions at a lot of different points, but for InHatch then, who is who is your customer? Who are you most focused on? Is it maybe not surgeons? Is it medical device companies or uh, healthcare systems that, you provide an ecosystem and then they scale it out, if you will, uh, where they are mm-hmm. already in terms of, of care delivery um, or, or how does this take hold? Sure. So we, we design for the surgeon. So we think about the surgeon and the patient, right? That's our kind of sure. core focus is that you're the ones who have to use it and the patient has to experience it and, and have the results from it. But our customer is often today a medical device company. We've, we've talked to a few hospitals that express interest and we think there's opportunities elsewhere. Um, I believe there'll be opportunities across, uh, across any of the participants. Um, I could even see a future where, where surgeons may be customers on their own or, or users, you know, uh, independent of a company. So that's part of how we built the ecosystem was after a decade of learning in the industry uh, on how they were evolving the tech side of things. You have to build a really flexible framework to have everybody work together on the same solution. So uh, yeah, today we ultimately sell to the device company. That's who our sales reps are, you know, picking up the phone and dialing. Uh, but the, uh, the main effort uh, for us is to make sure we're designing products for the surgeon and patient that they, things they want. And, uh, I think that's, you know, that's a pretty common thing in our industry is that we always worry about those two, uh, folks in the equation. Agreed. And, and the patient is ultimately the, the end consumer of this in, in conjunction exactly. with their uh, physician and the relationship that they have there with their surgeon. So obviously you've, you've, been in the industry a long time and, and 
just are a smart guy and know a lot about a lot of these things, you know, to take it a little, little different direction for patients or just somebody who's, who's not deep in this medical device, surgical space, but is just listening to this because mm-hmm. they, they know me or whatever. Um, what should, what should patients be looking for in their, in their healthcare and their surgery? What, what is, what do you identify as key things that you're telling people that ask you, what are they, what should they be seeking out? Yeah, I'll, I'll still give the same advice that you have to trust your surgeon. You have to feel confident in their ability to, uh, to, to perform the surgery and the fact that she does a lot of surgeries every year uh, and uh, of the type that you're getting, right? That's always an important part of this. Um, there's a, you know, everyone's got to learn and everyone's got to start somewhere. Uh, but uh, I always look, when I do the, the analysis, I always look to see, um, okay, what did the doc, where did the doc train, right? And, you know, they train under uh, a, good, a good system, right? Did they have a good mentor? Did they have a fellowship? I think those are incredible, you know, factors in this, in that you spent your life training to do a certain procedure. Um, and I, I, I think the I data think, backs you up on that too. I mean, I think we yeah. do know that that surgeons that do these kind of things in high volumes and that specialize on on mm-hmm. certain procedures do have better outcomes and lower complication rates. And so, I would definitely agree with that. It's true, and uh, you know that also means that their facility is ready for it. It also means that it's going to be a more streamlined uh, workflow for the patient. It's going to be you know in get surgery and out instead of, uh, you know, more and more complications. I had another, um, like, friend, close friend of the family who uh, had really active person, like, working, you know. Uh, they were in their 60s and fell off the ladder and went to a community hospital that didn't have a lot of experience. Doc didn't have a lot of cases under the belt, and it was, it was tough. Like, they, they just wanted it over with, right? And that's why they, I recommended they actually were down in Philly. I recommend a couple of docs over at Rothman because I know a bunch of the docs over there and have worked with them through the years. But, you know, he was in the hospital. He just wanted it over with. But, you know, 10 years later, he was still dealing with the complications from that first surgery. And uh, um, I'm not saying that it, it was a bad fall and, you know, it was hard. Sure. I, I'm never the one who has to do this, by the way. So I, <laughs> I, I'm always, always standing behind the guy or gal who's doing it. And, uh, but I know it's a hard surgery. But the the more you do, the more experience, the more comfort you have, uh, the more trust that you have in that surgeon and the experience behind it. That's a really important part. I also say there's an indication that, and it's not a necessary one, but I think it's really interesting when doctors are looking at newer technologies, and it's not a matter of age. It's not like, oh, young docs like AR and robotics and old, old docs just like to use a, um, a chisel and a hammer, which, you know, no one uses those anymore. But it's, it's more about um, the idea that you haven't, you're always honing your craft. So you're always trying to find, is, is this going to be a better solution for us? You remember for, you know, you know this, but doctors don't go into a surgery without having done multiple cases, either virtually or um, on cadaver, in practice and preparation for a new technology. So, so like that, that, that constant knowledge and 
uh, learning. When you see surgeons who are interested in these things and trying these things, it's also a good indicator that they, they're curious and their, their process and learning is, is never going to end. And that's a good sign of someone who's going to be better uh, every time you meet them because they have more and more of that focus training. I, I totally agree with that. And I've, I've known surgeons, you know, 60, 70 plus years old that are, that are still obsessed and they're just dynamic and they're, they're, they're thinking about these things constantly. And it just uh-huh. occupies so much of their life and what they do. And they're interested in new parts of it and new techniques. And there, there are guys that, you know, quite honestly, get out of training and, and shift their brain into neutral at 35 years old and are, are just going to uh-huh. try to replicate the same stuff that they were were taught and it never grows or evolves. Um, hopefully much more of the, the former than the latter going on out there. But I, I agree yeah. with you that it's not a it's not an age thing. It's not. Um, I'll, I'll never forget one of the one of the only surgeons, one of the only surgeons who could easily uh, outwork me right, uh, who had, he was probably twice, he was probably more than twice my age when I was working with Dr. John Fenlon out of uh, Rawson. Um, him and Dr. Mark Lazarus, they were working on a shoulder project with us, and they would go through a full day of surgery. We would drive down to Philly, because we're here in, uh, in Hoboken, New Jersey, about a two-hour drive. We'd get into Philly right around 4 o'clock, and we'd have an OR set up, and we'd do some work. We would go until 12, 1 a.m. And they'd still have the energy to keep going, but I had to actually drive back. <laughs> um, so uh, um, it was never about the uh, the uh, the age, right? It was really about the, the mental uh, preparation and advancement and learning. And, uh, you know, it, it happens. It's just the type of person that most, most orthopods are, which is great. And that's why I really love this industry um, and where I spent all my career uh, there's just there's this need for improvement, and uh, it's a very humble group in general. Yeah, I uh, had the pleasure of interviewing a guy named Dave Tate, a very uh, internationally known uh, power lifter who's had a couple of hip replacements, and we got to talk on mm-hmm. the podcast, and he said passion trumps everything. And I think that's mm-hmm. what you're seeing uh, with those guys and with people that do it. Um, you got it. That's awesome. What what's what's the future? What's out there? What what's AI and technology gonna gonna be delivering that's that you you feel like is gonna win and is gonna be the the thing that really delivers? So when people ask me this, uh, the the answer usually bothers a lot of people. So uh, I'm sure if they get to this far in the podcast, there'll be a few folks that complain. We're keeping it real here, so I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> we, we want to hear your answer. Yeah, so let's just have a thought experiment where we imagine that uh, AI keeps progressing at an incredible pace, and because of that, and the processing power keeps progressing at an incredible pace, like it has been. Uh, and where we are today and where we are 10 years from now, could be five years from now, could be you know somewhere in between. It's not going to be 20 years from now, but we will be 3D printing more and more parts in the body. And uh, those parts will be probably at first not generated by AI, but they'll be 3D printed, bio um, uh, printed parts. So we could, if we think about what we're doing for the past 10 years in orthopedics, a lot of 3D printing, but of you know general shapes and sizes. 
Well, the bioprinting world has really been heavily invested in, heavily evolving. Uh, there's been some great acquisitions recently by some of the strategics in 3D printing around uh, soft tissue and, and vessels and areas. So I don't see us that far away. Like definitely in our lifetimes and even in the next decade probably, bioprinted organs, bioprinted cartilage, ligaments. Uh, so maybe there's new procedures that we haven't yet thought of because, you know, yeah, you could put a cadaver ligament in, but that's only so good. Uh, but now you could have your own personal patient-specific bioprinted organ uh, or ligament or tendon or whatever the piece is that we'd want to replace. And I see that continuing to advance. So uh, there's this, like this flow I've got. I've got this great chart that I draw on a whiteboard for folks. And, okay, we started here with metal and, and, and you know, some plastics. And it's evolving into more complex structures, better results. It'll evolve into maybe a, a bio knee, like you're 3D replacing, uh, instead of a piece of cobalt chrome, it's an actual living piece of tissue that was printed. Uh, this is where I think it'll keep evolving, but it'll go beyond orthopedics. It'll go into the simpler soft tissue areas, like, uh, like I was described, musculoskeletal. And then it'll go into, you know, vessels and other areas and it'll eventually go into organs. So we won't need transplants when we can 3D print a liver or a kidney and eventually even a heart. And I don't, I'm not the engineer that's going to solve that problem, right? I want to be our team, our company is the engineer that wants to build the delivery system so that you could go print 450,000 hearts this year to keep people going. Mm. And the whole idea here is how do we live longer, happier, more active lifestyles? Uh, I feel like, um, this is a this is a personal thing where if we could all extend our lives ten, twenty, thirty years in in a productive way, uh, I just think is what could happen, right? Like Jeff Bezos lived to one hundred and twenty. What kind of crazy innovation will come out of someone like that? Um, right. Who's really you know Elon Musk, uh, Matt Barber, right? These guys <laughs> that are out there doing great things. If we all live a lot longer. How many more years of surgery? How many more yeah. uh, experiences? Well, and you're have? talking a little bit about health span versus just lifespan mm-hmm. too of that yeah. quality of life and, and how long are you, are you vital and productive? Absolutely. Yeah. Health span is an important part of it is that you're, you're still, I mean, my grandfather passed in his seventies, but he was, you know, on a ladder painting a side of a wall, like two weeks before he passed. So, uh, that's definitely the, the, um, the, the goal. We live longer, happier, healthier lives. And when something does come up, it shouldn't feel like a death sentence. It should be a quick, efficient replacement. Just like how we do, you know, a million plus knee replacements a year. Now that could be happening with all kinds of areas of the body that we hadn't thought. And then I always caveat all this by, well, unless pharma figures out a way to just like inject us with something and we magically repair and regenerate everything. But, uh, um, but if pharma doesn't figure that out, I think the medical device world will. Yeah. And it's kind of an overlap too. I mean, you're, you're certainly talking a lot about uh, the orthobiologics space of, Mm -hmm. you know, whether we're talking about a 3d printed collagen matrix and then we use, 
some type of ACI stem cell technology mm-hmm. to to replete that with with the patient's tissues and then then implant it back. Uh, there, there's a lot of potential there. So you think that's even mm-hmm. even on a on a decade horizon here? Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be the easier ones first, and easier in the grand scheme of things, right? Sure. Like there'll probably be kidneys printed in the next few years that get implanted into the body. Um, but, uh, and it may not be on that, so it might be like hundreds of thousands of patients at first, but it'll be the, that those first cases that prove it's possible. And obviously there'll be some failures and there'll be some successes and some challenges, but, uh, it should absolutely keep morphing, um, beyond, um, beyond this. And, and again, I say, I describe it as 3D printing or additive or bioprinting. It may not even be that specific uh, methodology, right? It might be a combination, like you were describing, of different pieces of the puzzle to make it work. But uh, there's um, just a ton of proof that we're heading in that direction. Well, and you touched on something. that There's part of it that we don't know, right? Because this technology mm-hmm. doesn't develop in a linear manner. It, it's <laughs> it's logarithmic, right? And, and so yeah. the, the technology that's being developed right now is what will allow the development and the more rapid development of the technology that's being developed 18 months from now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, just to just think about like the tools, right? Like when orthopedics started, it was a hammer and a chisel. They didn't have sagittal saws like we have today that are uh, perfectly crafted to your hand and, you know, doesn't have any balance and weighs a few ounces, right? They were basically kind of um, chiseling out what they needed to chisel out to make the bone fit. Uh, before there were instruments, right? You did, you did have some saws. And I've, I've actually seen surgeons do a freehand femoral cut and come out with a decent result. Um, it's incredible to imagine, but that's how it progressed before instrumentation. Uh, it's just incredible to think about these, these evolution of tools that we have. And the same thing's happening in AI where say 10 years ago, when we were, we had some of our own servers we were doing work on and we still do for, for things, but I can now go into the cloud and scale that up. Like I don't use it for production purposes, right? I know go to the, now go to cloud and Amazon, Amazon's got this incredible Azure and everybody else, incredible set of tools for me to build from just like you have, better tools to do orthopedics, we have better tools to generate um, the software and the hardware out there. So uh, this all just keeps progressing and improving what's in your hands every day. So uh, it's going to keep happening. It's going to keep happening in in rapid pace. And there will be innovations that feel like, how did that just happen? It's going to be like, how did we go from here to there? Because we're having this stepwise uh, level of technology advancement that has never been like this. We've never seen this before. Um, you know, the the speed of processing power is moving faster than Moore's law um, in the GPU world, and it's a it's a completely different level. So we we've talked about some really macro kind of fifty thousand foot stuff about tech and AI. Let, let me bring it down a little bit smaller to stuff sure. uh, that's interesting to me, uh, just in orthopedics yeah. and joint replacement. Um, we do a lot of three D imaging right now, uh, CT scans, mm-hmm. MRIs, uh, and of course, uh, 
good old-fashioned x-rays two-dimensionally um what about a 2d to 3d uh with ai <laughs> it's like uh, you read my mind here uh, we're we've submitted it to the fda um by the time this comes out i'm not sure it'll be approved yet or you know for clearance but we submitted our our 2d to 3d solution for ct mri and uh, and for needs. And what's exciting is that, that if, when that gets cleared, we will have a, uh, solution that can work directly off of x-ray and, and also quickly, like this isn't going to be requires a human. It requires, you know, effort. It's going to be a very fast, efficient process. So the, the calculation, the goal is that by the time the nation, patient puts their clothes back on after taking an x-ray um, and they're walking over to your clinic that you have a full preoperative plan in your hand from that when the x-ray was taken to when the patient sits down and you walk in the room wow. so that's going to be that's possible now from a speed point of view um, we're just waiting for the necessary clearances and this is kind of like the tools I'm talking about we're, we're building these foundational tools to help surgeons like yourself but also the companies and the the other folks in, uh, in the ecosystem have that data. Yeah. Uh, Cause uh, I mean, imagine that you're putting on a virtual reality headset on the patient and kind of showing them how their knee's going to work um, after you're done. Right. And it's that's their plan right there. Not, not some, right. uh, some random pretty picture movie like image that's their pre-op plan for their, their need. And I think you can you can very much make the point that that is intelligent surgery because as we evolve some of these technologies, I think the immediate pushback from some quarters is, oh, it's more expensive, oh, it's this, it's more radiation for the patient. And here, as this evolves, it's getting easier, faster, cheaper where you've used the tech piece to bridge the gap back to a 2D x-ray and make some of these planning technologies more accessible and, and faster. You got it. And, and you know, x-rays are, have so much information in them. You know, just a few images from an x-ray uh, can generate a significant amount of understanding of what that complication is in the, in the bony anatomy. And, uh, you know, if we think about where, where things should go next, where things will go next, it's also the implementation of uh, data that you can get directly off your iPad, patient's motion, or your iPhone, right? It's capture the patient's motion, catch, capture how they walk, how they get out of the chair. Uh, being able to apply that to the algorithm and understand how to repair that patient. Um, and I haven't even got into the details around sensors. We have some, some interesting uh, tech IP around sensor technology for interop um, decision making. And if that pans out, it's more data that we're going to be able to feed into the algorithm for you to help understand how to treat that patient. So as we keep evolving um, the platform and the tools that we give to the surgeons, the engineers, and the companies, uh, it's just incredible to think about what's going to, to be possible. And like you said, not for more money, but for less money, for, you know, the processing power 
becomes more and more efficient means it becomes cheaper and cheaper each year. Right. So we could actually be saving uh, money and not raising prices and actually having better outcomes, uh, which is exactly where we want to go. We have to go. Peter, this has been uh, an incredible amount of uh, good stuff to try to take in and, and digest here. Thank you. If, uh, if somebody is with a medical device firm or they're a surgeon or they need to connect with you or InHatch, how do they do that? Yeah, just head to our website and you can chat with any of the folks right there on the site. Uh, start talking. You can, we have a number of you know, ebooks and other things you guys can check out and read on your own if you prefer to investigate a little bit more. But the, uh, the real easy way is just head there and, uh, and chat with someone live. Um, and sometimes I even pick up that it's late enough or early enough in the morning. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I, I appreciate your, uh, your passion for this and, and for learning and making us better and making surgery better, uh, for surgeons mm-hmm. and for our, our patients. Uh, can't thank you enough for being on, uh, for everybody that's listening, uh, Take an opportunity to uh, rate the OrthoReal podcast, uh, share it if you will, and reach out to Peter Varillo on LinkedIn or InHatch at their website, as he mentioned. Uh, thanks so much, Peter.